The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned into The Glenn Show, Substack.com and YouTube. The Glenn Show is sponsored by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City, where I am John Paulson, Senior Fellow. This week, we're with John McWhorter, as we are every other week, the Glenn and John Act, and we're joined by Peter Moskos. Peter is Professor of Criminology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, City University of New York. Uh, he's a former police officer serving in Baltimore City, and he's a PhD in sociology um, who has uh, a lot of knowledge about policing and uh, law enforcement in urban America, and he's agreed to join us today. So thanks, Peter. Uh, thanks for having me back. All right. Well, you know why we're having you back. We're having you back. And by the way, Peter has been a guest previously on uh, numerous occasions on The Glenn Show, and we, we talk about the kind of stuff we're talking about today, uh, sadly, um, which is the killing in Memphis, Tennessee by police officers of a black uh, youth, young man named Tyree Nichols, uh, which has gotten uh, attention throughout the country and throughout the world, for that matter. And everybody's talking about it. Uh, the uh, city of Memphis uh, released video of this uh, event. It's very brutal, uh, and it raises a lot of questions about uh, policing in America. Uh, what's your um, uh, general impression, uh, Peter, both of, about the incident itself and about how it was handled uh, by the authorities in Memphis uh, and about the reaction that it has engendered throughout the country? And Peter, also, if I may jump very quickly in, this sure. case seems to be, you know, so egregious you can barely believe it. And I've often said on this show that I have learned that in these cases, the story is never what we're initially told. This time, it looks like it is. Is there something we don't know? Or is this one really just the, the utter horror show that it seems to be? Uh, both, I think. Um, let me just start with the utter horror show, because I think that needs to be put out front, um, we're seeing brutal and criminal acts by cops. Even in other cases where there are brutal and cr criminal acts by cops, there, there can be some, mitigating isn't the right word because it doesn't lessen the act, but there are extenuating circumstances where you kind of go, oh, I don't agree with that, but oh, you know, the guy said this, the guy hit the cop. There was some right. extenuating circumstance that, doesn't justify it, but it helps explain it at least. Right. In this case, we don't see any of that. Um, it is just police brutality combined with police incompetence, which is a horrible combination. Um, what we still don't know is um, why he was stopped. And there is other video out there that hasn't been released, and I can't figure out why it hasn't been released. And I don't want to start or even spread rumors, though I've heard them. Um, I find it very odd that um, the video starts where it does. Now, in one sense, it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter what would happen before in terms of what happened afterwards. Um, he could have shot and killed a cop, honestly, before that, and it wouldn't defend the cop's actions in this case. But I would like to know what, what the hell the story is. My guess is, I mean, look, police withhold information for good reasons, bad reasons, and just incompetent reasons. Um, but... Why don't we know what happened at the stop? I assume it's, it would make things worse for the cops, but I, I don't know. But but it, there is video still out there. Perhaps it's for the criminal, you know, being held by the prosecutor for some reason. It's possible, but um, we don't quite know everything yet. But what we do know is enough to make, to pass judgment and, and condemnation of the case. Um, the incompetent part I want to point out is because after he is pulled from the car, um, there are three cops. And the guy, Nichols, gets up and runs away because he's afraid he's for his life. 
Um, the fact that he was able to run away is shocking to me as a former cop. I mean, that's just, what the hell? There are three cops there and he got up and run away? Had the cops simply been brutal and competent, Nichols would still be alive. Um, the real ass-whooping happened after they chased and got him, and, and that's, that's also on police because that, <laughs> that situation never should have arisen. So that's just, I don't know, it's just a detail, uh, but its its it just shows what a horrible shit show it was from the police perspective. Now, a lot of people um, on the right are making the point that um, the recruiting efforts to bring uh, black officers onto the force was associated with a lowering of standards that uh, is partly implicated in the poor policing behavior of the individuals in question here. The five individuals, I believe it is, that have been charged, all were black. Uh, and uh, I find that argument, um, uh, it could co conceivably have merit, but it is a very distasteful point to be making in the context of what has happened. I'm wondering how you react to that, Peter. That, I, I, for example, I heard- uh, Similarly, it, it is very distasteful. It's not inconceivable. Um, Police departments are having a tough time hiring, and, and it's almost inevitable that standards will be lowered. And lower standards means worse police officers. But we don't know that in this case. We don't know that, that, what, what that story was. Um, so I do think that's an odd reaction to have to blame it on that. No, um, and it's not like we didn't have these incidents occasionally a few years ago when it was easier to hire cops. Um, okay, so, so as that's you say, a red yeah, herring. I mean, yeah. Um, though there's a good warning there, which is, I mean, just in general, I am worried about police retention and recruitment. Um, and so I do worry that we're going to have worse policing in the future because departments are so desperate for cops right now. Um, you see these incredibly small police academy classes that do not um, replace those who are quitting. And that's troublesome. In a way, it's good because if you're only graduating Baltimore had 13 cops, where my class had 50. Oakland just had a class of 17. It implies they're not lowering standards because they don't have enough cops out there. It could be both. Um, but, that's, that's a, no, but that is a separate issue from, from what we're talking about here in, this, in this, this beating, this killing. Were you surprised uh, that there was a think about um, protest and reaction uh, in the wake of the, of the killing? Things seem to remain relatively peaceful, all things considered. Um, <clears throat> they did remain relatively peaceful. I, there was a lot of um, chatter that... So the police, the Memphis Police Department withheld the videos, said they were horrible, and then released them on Friday night, um, which perhaps is not the best time to release police brutality videos if you're worried about civic disorder. <laughs> that said, um, from a you know from a nationwide policing perspective, it seems to have worked. Now, the key thing, though, I don't think is the timing of the release. It's that the officers were quickly um, held accountable in the sense that they were fired and criminally charged. I mean, this the first time really we saw that was with George Floyd in the sense that the office it wasn't immediate, it wasn't as quick, but the traditional rallying cry. Um, going back to, you know, Al Sharpton in the 90s uh, or 80s was, uh, you know, no justice, no peace. So here we do have justice in the sense that we have a justice system. I mean, it's it's not always satisfying justice. Uh, but the system were is working at that level. And maybe that is, I mean, that's what we want, I think, because I don't know, after these happen, I don't know what else the alternative is. So that might have taken some of this thing out of it. Or maybe the public is just reached a point where they can't handle another video and, and you know, don't think about it and just pre-existing opinions are confirmed or not. Um, but, but I'd like to think it's because these officers are being held accountable, which is why people weren't out. Well, you know, a few people were out there breaking stuff, but generally we didn't have the mass protests. And Well, remember also that if that were five white guys, I think there would have been protests. I mean, the fact that it was... Brothers, as a lot of people put it. Do you? Makes it different. 
that probably has something to do I with it. I think so, too. Um, I mean, this this was unique in the sense that everybody... The, I mean, there are, are, have been some white cops that have been fired, and I think charged, maybe not yet. Um, there have been others other than the five. Um, I think when the video was released, the sheriff department said, hey, we had some guys there, too. Maybe they didn't know that. Uh, so they got fired um, after the video was released. Um, there's issues with the paramedic or the fire department, yeah. too. Uh, but um, the five cops who were pictured and were the main culprits in the killing, and the police chief, let's not forget, and the victim. Everyone's black. Now, of course, and you've talked about this a lot in your show, people want to say it's still an example of white supremacy and all that. And But at some point, you, you kind of go, no, this race was not the main factor here, or a factor even, potentially. Um, and I, I think that, I think John's right, that that helps uh, influence public opinion. That, you that know what I, people I'm, were not as you know, angry. Excuse me, John. I just want to clarify that the point is that people were not as angry as they might otherwise have been because the cops were black and not white in the in this context. You know what I find interesting is one would think that the anti-policing crowd would jump on this point that I'm about to make. Because in a way it serves the anti-policing agenda better. Um and I've said this. And I know John has said this too, um, in relation to in relation to what I've written. But um, this is a police problem. It's not a race problem. It might be a there's a, you know there's it's America. There might be an, there's an underlying race problem always hovering over everything. But this issue is a police problem, and unless we address it as a police problem, we're not going to solve it. It's it's the exclusive focus on race that is part of the problem because we're not getting to the source of it, um, which is bad cops, a combination of bad cops, bad leadership, bad training, um, bad supervision. Where was the sergeant in all this? That's another question I want to know about this. Um, it is, you're going to solve this departmentally by departmentally um, through accountability and good leadership. Um, it is almost always these sort of specialized units um, that get into trouble. And there was a Washington Post column yesterday saying we have to abolish all these specialized units. Well, every city has them. And it seems, I don't know, every five years, every 10 years, since like since 1990, or, you know, there have been a half dozen cases. But there are hundreds of these units out there, hundreds of day every year. Um, the answer when something like this happens isn't to say we need to get rid of policing in whatever form. Um, but we do need to make sure these happen as little as possible. Um, but, you know, every time this happens, and I'll say it again, it's going to happen again. We know that. It's a criminal activity. The idea that this should never happen is ideal. It's unrealistic. It's like any crime. you got more than 600,000 cops out there. Most of them are young men of varying degrees of, you know, maturity and intellectual development. Let's just put it politely. Um <laughs> It's 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 irresponsible to be completely shocked that this happens in the abstract. It's going to happen. It's happened before. It'll happen again. The question is, what do? How do we lessen it? And what do we do about it? But um, it, it, yeah, and it's not to excuse it, but it is inevitable at some point. But we can certainly make sure it happens less. And part of that, I think, is by charging these cops and not covering it up and things like that. Um, but it, it this specialized unit was clearly poorly run. There's no there's no supervision there, and also you know we don't know, but it, the way they did this, it doesn't look like the first time. We're going to hear more stories. Um, that they, they, they seem pretty uh, routine in in their in the way they, they beat him in their in their brutality. In their brutality, yeah. I mean, at one point, um, you know, I've seen a lot of videos of people getting beat up. So the actual beating. Um, I'll say did not shock my conscience because I've seen too many of these damn things. Uh, but the one part that did make me go, oh, shit, uh, was at some point the cop, like one of them's holding him and the other one of the cops slugs him like five times. And that um, that kind of, yeah, that that to me took it to another level. Um, they also, I, the fact that they were incompetent and couldn't get him to cuffs in the first place means maybe they were just incompetent later, but no, they could have cuffed him. They didn't want him cuffed because they wanted to keep beating him. That's my take on it. 
Um, because interestingly, once they did finally put him in cuffs, you know, they did stop beating him then. So even even they had some weird code that they were abiding by. Um, but yeah, it, it's I, well. By then he was the uh, uh, semi conscious and uh, slumped over and sitting on the street curb with his back against the vehicle. I mean, it was just yeah. And it still took a half hour from that point before the ambulance came, which is another. But, um, I, I, I want to go back to this issue of whether it is or is not a race uh, problem. You say it's a policing thing, not a race thing. But the counter to that would be this wouldn't have happened if the guy had been white. Do you agree with that, Peter? I don't. Um, There's no way to know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in, the, in this case, who knows? I don't know what those cops would have done. But, I mean, yeah, there, there are tons of videos out there of Cops shooting white people for no good reason and being brutal to white people. And they don't, people generally don't see them because they don't get the coverage in the national media without the race angle. Um, but I, I mean, I've, yeah, cops shoot white people too. Cops beat white people too. Um, is it disproportionately black, the victims of police brutality? Well, it depends on what the denominator is. I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, but in the same disparities, I think that police interact with people generally. Again, this and and I. This case again, it was just. That's why also why I want to see what led up to this, um, but, this guy was not presenting himself in some, thug-like fashion. Um, at one point, you know, he's saying the cops are telling him to get on the ground, and he kind of looks back and goes, "I am on the ground," and of course, what he didn't know, like I knew what the cops meant, which is when the cop says get on the ground, they mean get on the ground, you know, flat spread eagle. Um, he didn't know that. And why should he? <laughs> All you know, he knows is he's on the ground. You, you know, I'm going to venture this. I'm, not, I'm never going to write it. I'm just going to venture it here, wondering what set these guys off. Because, you know, there is just human brutality. I hate to say this, but the only thing I can imagine, and Peter, I'll bet you've thought of this too. And I don't know the answer. Was Tyree Nichols effeminate? Were they disgusted with him for some brutal reason like that, such that, they start beating him down because they don't like guys like that. It's the only thing I can think of, and of course it would not remotely justify it, but why him, why then, why that mean? And what it almost looks like is the sort of thing that gay men have often suffered at the hands of cops. Just wondering. I haven't heard his voice clearly. And I haven't frankly, it would come out in voice, you know. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I just, I, I don't think so because... We haven't read about it. We haven't mm -hmm. read about it. I don't think he, he didn't, he didn't strike me as that effeminate is one reason. Right. Um, and I don't know, cops are used to dealing with all types and most of them don't get beat up. So just trying to think of what, what set them off. Well, partly, you know, I'll say, I don't, it, I don't know. Again, the, when the video starts, he's pulled from the car too aggressively. What set them off was that they maced each other. Um, oh, that's yeah. important. It doesn't justify it, but if, if, if you haven't been maced and you're not going to get this from the video, you don't realize how painful it is. So once you get maced, it's a game changer. They maced um, each other by accident trying to mace him. Yeah, further incompetence. Um, but when you get maced in your eye, I mean, it, remember, this is a substance that is designed to be incapacitatingly painful. Um, and it you know won't kill you and you can fight through it, but... But they've all been maced, and so that sets them off, um, you know, emotionally, physically. And I mean, it's Do just, they think it, he maced them? No, they know they were maced by cops, they, but it doesn't right. matter. Mace is so painful. So you're dealing mm -hmm. with these guys who are already have their adrenaline flowing, and now they've been maced. It just, I mean, so that, again, I don't mean this in any way to defend it, but that set them off. Um, and, of course, it was their right. fault, uh, but, but they have been maced. The whole thing is, you know, them dealing with that. And so then they take it out on, on Nichols. Um, I've been hurt, even though they were hurt by another cop. <laughs> Peter, can I ask you this, too? There's a shoe that hasn't dropped. Um, I was surprised that this wasn't the immediate response, that the guys were fired only because they're black, that if white cops had done this, they wouldn't have been fired, and so this isn't a milestone. Why haven't we heard that? I'm really surprised that that hasn't been the first thing that people started writing about this from a certain spectrum. You know? um, I have heard. It's funny when I saw their pictures. That was that was, you know, joking to myself. My first thought was that, 
Like, oh, look, they're all black, so they were fired. Um, I I think in this situation, had it been white cops with the same chief, she would have made the same decision. I don't know. Who, who can say? Um, I think that was her form of damage control. Um, and partly, I think, is because she... There, I mean, the department, this has to go higher. This is what I... The systemic problem is in the Memphis Police Department. They didn't have supervision for this. So I'm a little, um, I'm happy they were fired, but I'm also a little suspicious of the motives. I think it, it is to place them as fall guys here and to not have to look deeper. I mean, at, at some point, this does go up to the chief. That's where the buck stops. Um, and I don't think she's accepted that responsibility and that accountability yet. Um, but would have they been fired if they're white? I don't know. We're in a different time, I think, where people are, um, we're firing these cops when possible, uh, is, is being more of the, the chosen path. But, you know, I don't think in New York City you could fire them that quickly. I mean, so there are union rules and so on, and I don't know the contract in Memphis. Um, but she was able to, apparently. Of course, you're always able to. The question is, if it's unjustified, then they get reinstated later with back pay. Um, right. But that, you, can, you can at least kick that can down the road. What happens yeah, to cops like you, that? Sorry, John, I didn't mean to interrupt. What, what were you saying? I was going to say, what do they go do? What happens to those guys? Do they oh, ever get another fired? job? Yeah. Well, they're fired and charged criminally, so that, you know they got to deal with the criminal chart. You know the, the the case that's coming up. So that that's you know that's what's on their mind right now. But um, presuming that the firing is upheld, and I'm pretty sure in this case it will be. I mean, they're they're screwed. They're out of work. Um, they're not going to get another job easily. And so, I mean, their lives are are ruined. Um, you know. Oh well, but. I wanted to ask you, Peter, about the Scorpion. This is the special uh, uh, anti-drug uh, gun uh, police unit that these guys were a part of that uh, some have called to be disbanded, uh, not just in Memphis. And you you resist that. And um, I want to know how these specialized, uh, I almost want to say warrior cop units uh, fit within the larger policy frame of policing in a city like Memphis. What's what's the function and purpose of these, and why do you uh, uh, resist the call for them to be disbanded? Because somebody's got to take the guns off, people. Excuse me for a second. Um, somebody's got to take the guns off armed people, and it's not it's it's not easy work. It's not dangerous work. Most cops don't want to do it. Um, and if, if you don't have these units, no one's going to do that. It's not going to happen on patrol. It's not that social workers are going to somehow do this. Um, there is, it is the consistently most dangerous part. I mean, you're taking guns off armed people who are ready to use it. That, that is part of policing. And if you don't have these units, the, the, it's just not going to happen. Um, often when these units are disbanded, you saw it... Um, you, it, violence will go up. Um, there is a purpose that these units serve in terms of crime prevention. I don't know, again, this unit, I don't want to give any credit to because of what happened in the apparent lack of leadership and supervision, but, you know, murders did plummet last year in Memphis for what it's worth. I don't know if that was because of this unit. Um, Might have been. Um, it's not inconceivable. Um, but the idea that you're going to have effective policing without proactive policing going after repeat violent offenders. It's just, I mean, it's a political decision. We can say, look, we'd prefer for 20 more people to get murdered next year and not have the risk of this unit doing this. Um, the other thing, though, is if you get rid of these units, those cops are still going to be there. They're just going to be, you might just be pushing the brutality somewhere else. Now, there, is, But there is a concentrating influence here, and that's why the supervision of these units is so vitally important, because you are attracting these alpha males, the, the, the cops who want to be in these units, the cops. Um, and when you put them all together, the risks exponentially increase. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're, you're, you're, you are playing with fire a little bit. But most police departments manage to, you know, contain that flame um, day in and day out quite well. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's why it's important to say these still are outlier cases. And that doesn't mean that they're, again, it doesn't mean they won't happen again. And it doesn't lessen what happens, but it's not the norm even for these units. But but there's a greater risk with those units. 
What are they doing? Well, so Memphis, like all cities, in a couple of years, they're going to reinstitute this unit and some other going to give some other acronym. Um, it'll be back. Um, what all, what mean, are they doing? I'm just trying to get down into the nitty gritty about the policing. Uh, how, are, how are they conducting themselves as police officers on the street differently in virtue of having the charge of getting guns out and uh, dealing with the hard cases? The difference, and I think it does happen when these when you have all, when you have these units and that more aggressive type of cop who chooses to be in that, you know, one's a, no one, you don't, no one gets involuntarily assigned to these units. Um, it is considered, you know, special and elite, though. I don't want to call this unit elite because uh, that has positive connotations. Um, you know, some of it is, again, the nature of the work that you're constantly, more constantly dealing with armed people, armed, armed criminals. Some of it, though, and this is the, if you have one of these people in your squad, you might not like the way they operate, but at least that person is getting the stink eye from the rest of the squad for the way they, the way they operate if they're treating yeah. people rudely or unnecessary. And if you don't have the positive peer pressure of more restrained cops, um, you're more likely to keep escalating your behavior. Um, I mean, I think that's just sort of a group dynamic that happens when you have, you know, squads of a, of a dozen people or whatever. Um, and so that is where the supervision is so key. I mean, that the sergeant, which is people all outside of, in policing, sort of most, everyone will say the sergeant is the most important rank um, because it's that middle ground between the upper level cops and the street cops and the sergeant is still on the street um, where above that often you're, not on the street, or not very often. Um, the sergeant's level is, is is where this gets prevented. Um, along with, of course, you know, when cops do something bad, you got to call them out, and you got to you got to discipline them, you got to punish them, and fire them. Um, but it's that's going to happen at the level from the sergeant. It's the sergeant's job. Um, ideally, the sergeant prevents bad behavior. Um, so that that in terms of preventing these type kind of things in the future, um, that's where police departments have to have to look. Um, listening to the um, speeches at the funeral of Tyree Nichols, uh, Benjamin Crump uh, gave a long speech, uh, Al Sharpton gave a long speech. The main policy response they seem to be calling for What was, was your reaction past- to Sharpton, Dr. Laurie? Well, He's now our elder statesman, right? <laughs> exactly. That was going to I be the way. I you guys. I know what you say. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, John and I have a somewhat different views about Al Sharpton. John can speak for himself. I'm not a big He's Sharpton changed. fan, uh, but, you know. John? He's changed. <laughs> uh, no, I, I want thought... to ask a question, though. It, and John and I can get into that more in the second half of our, uh, of our post today, because, uh, uh, you know, I definitely want to talk about Al Sharpton, but I want to talk about qualified immunity. I want to talk about the George Floyd uh, police reform legislation in the Congress. And I want to get your uh, expert uh, police criminology uh, take on, um, on reform. I mean, qualified immunity, which is the legal doctrine shielding uh, law enforcement officers from personal liability uh, in the case of uh, these kinds of incidents. Um, and, um, I'm just wondering, uh, Peter, how you come down on that. What do you think about that? I'm, I feel my legal knowledge isn't good enough to really get into the nitty gritty of it. I don't fully understand. I mean, I, I you know, I, I do a bit, but I don't fully understand the immunity doctrines. Um, <clears throat> partly okay. though, I, I haven't learned about it, but let, but there's, I think it's a red herring. Um, I don't think that. I, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I, it's not going to fix it. Um, first of all, you know, there are there's also such a thing as total immunity that prosecutors and legislators have. Um, so police are not unique and they're and qualified as a as a lesser standard. Um, at some point, public servants need to be allowed to make honest mistakes um, without getting sued. Um, if we're worried about Increasing the quality of police, getting rid of qualified immunity is not going to help uh, recruitment, retention, and so on. Um, if it's just on the police departments, it's it's one thing. But the truth is, qualified immunity 
and maybe it doesn't affect many cases because it exists. So it's, there might be a sort of a autology there. But um, I, you know, these cops are being criminally charged. Qualified immunity doesn't change that. Um, so I'm not quite certain what the benefits of of, of getting rid of that would be. But again, I, I'm a little hesitant to talk too much about it because of my own ignorance. Fair enough. John, yeah. anything further? I think um, the fascinating thing about the whole thing, and Glenn, you and I can talk about this too, is the idea that you see that it was black guys and the typical response from the, na- the three-name the three name world basically, and, you know, a lot of them don't have three names, but I think everybody who watches this knows who those people are, <laughs> is that you have to decide that they're operating within a structure of white supremacy. Now, that's kind of a, a, a very kind of slate of hand thing because it's supposed to be that if it's Derek Chauvin, then he kills George Floyd because he's a racist. But then if it's these five guys, they're operating not, nobody wants to say racist, because it looks so implausible that these black guys were racist in that way and killed him because he's black. So you use this term of art, white supremacy, which means that the police forces have been assigned to be, pay more attention to poor black neighborhoods and to devalue black life in some way, in a systemic way. It's systemic. It's not about bigotry. But that's different. If that's what it is, if it's this abstract thing called the structural racism where it's just that impacts are different upon black people, that's different from somebody with a baton who's white beating somebody to death because they're black. So it seems to me that all this talk about white supremacy and therefore it's the same old thing doesn't work. It's these people wanting to make a certain kind of music and finding it inconvenient that this isn't five Derek Chauvins and instead it's these five guys with their very black American names. You know, not, They're not even mixed. One of them isn't Hispanic. They're black, 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 black American guys. And I've been a little bit disgusted by that because it, it's, it, it's whack. I think the best person who addressed it was Thomas Chatterton Williams, but all the other three-name people, like the three-name people who aren't him, are... <laughs> insisting on a certain narrative by misusing language, if you ask me. Peter, what do you but, think? You know, um, I'll leave the the sort of more macro-theoretical white supremacist argument to you two later, but um, I think there's some truth to that. But it also, so there, when these incidents happen, part, part of me wonders who actually wants to reduce this happening. Now, I think everyone wants innocent people not to get beat, not to get killed by cops. So there's that sense, yes, people don't want to see pain inflicted. But there are two ideologies out there that I think kind of enjoy when these incidents happen because then they can beat their, they beat their own drum pounding it. One is that the three-name people you talk about, um, but the other are just police abolitionists. And um, they don't want better policing because they want no policing. And so these incidents are useful to their cause, to what they want. This highlights the incidents. But what worries me is, is again, I'm afraid that a lot of people who claim to advocate for police reform don't actually want better policing. That's not what they want. Um, this isn't my first rodeo on this. You know, I professionally, I've been doing this now for two decades. Um, I and others, you know, have been working in that slow, unsexy, incremental way to make things better. Um, and by, by and large, there has been slow, incremental progress on these issues. Um, but it's troublesome when people who claim to want better policing want no policing. And I think they need to get called out. And abolitionists, um, they might be decent people, uh, and they might even have a noble goal, and reasonable people can differ, but they shouldn't have a table at the police reform movement that is trying to make policing better. Policing will only get better when you work with police departments. Um, that Even if it's imposed on police departments um, or comes from within the police department, but, but, but the police have to, I mean, they are almost by definition, we're, that's who we're talking about. So to exclude them from the debate and say they're the problem, so we have to do A, B, and C, um, is not going to make things better. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 
because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now that I've been on AG1, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All of the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. Uh, it's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. It really makes me feel better, I've noticed. It abets my digestion. Uh, I feel like I have more energy. It's easy to pack in my bag. I take it with me when I travel. I use it without fail every day. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than if you uh, were to buy all the supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Now, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Um, I agree. So, I agree you know, with you, Peter, but I got to do this, the devil's advocate here, because I can hear my friend Khalil Gibran Muhammad at the Kennedy School, you know who I'm talking about, uh, say the following. Nobody said that it was a straightforward white supremacy, that somehow those guys were white people in blackface who did this. What we're saying is there's a culture of violence characteristic of policing in urban areas with lots of blacks. And if you are a police officer in that situation, you imbibe that culture and you reflect it in your behavior. And it's that culture. Not we all drink from the, the same well, actors. is what a friend of mine put it, who grew up in East Baltimore and was a police officer there. Um, that's true. So where do we... The white so supremacists as well. Well, <laughs> I think if we, if we dealt into the more descriptive part, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, again, I prefer to focus on the less theoretical aspects. Um, I, what, so what do we do with that knowledge? We have a revolution. Um, we, 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 we say the only, we're only going to get things better when we eliminate white supremacy. I mean, you've talked about this before. Well, that's, you're putting your hands, you're putting your, your fate in the hands of these white supremacists to, to, to make themselves better. Um, we have to deal with the, to some extent, again, we can try and get a more fair deck of cards here, but right now we got to deal with the cards as they're dealt. If the, we don't want to stop policing communities that need police policing because of the high levels of violence. So I, I, I just, I find the, that argument one step too removed to, um, 
two steps too theoretical to actually make things better. It doesn't mean it's wrong even, but I, I just it, it's almost irrelevant um, in terms of, of, of what we're going to do here and now. You know, if I can say one thing, John, you have said in the past um, that to solve the race problems in America, we're going to have to solve the police problem. Um, I was thinking yesterday, you know, in a way, maybe it's the other way around. Um, and partly because of this instance, which in which there were very few white people involved, maybe we need to solve the race problem before we can solve the police problem. Um, that you know, that the the causal order there might be, um, or or maybe we can solve them together. But I don't see the police problem being solved with the folk with the exclusive focus on race that we have. And I don't know which uh, yeah. which is easier to deal with. It's interesting. I think um, I think of the naive Martian observer who comes down and just observes the facts would be mystified at the way, say, a Khalil Gibran talks about this when. There are all these stories we never hear about, to me, stereotypically. And Peter, I know this from you. They're always, it's always like Colorado or Arizona. Some poor, lower-class white boy gets killed for no reason, and nobody hears about it beyond the local news there for about three minutes. And yet, again and again, somebody will say, well, the, these people are sucked into this white supremacist system. Well, that's the way it is in that city that has a lot of black people in it. But in terms of who's getting killed by the cops under what conditions, the idea that it's a racialized problem is so clearly a narrative that a certain mainstream media is wedded to that is quite different from a reality that would be perceived by different eyes if we started all over again. Getting beyond race would be not treating the, the Daniel Shavers as inconvenient evidence. They would be in our heads every bit as much as the Laquan McDonald's. But I don't see how that would happen. Somebody like Khalil Gibran simply will not do that. That's, they're as close to that as Donna is to a lot of our views. And so what do you, how do you fix that? Well, you have to push back on the idea that policing by nature is part of the white supremacist system. I mean, look, if everything is part of the system and everything is white supremacy, then, yeah, I guess police fall under the umbrella. But this idea that, that the purpose of police was to oppress black people, um, in the North, it's ahistorical. It it's just wasn't the issue. Um, the, the reason that argument is used is to get to police abolition. Um, so that's why it, it, it's, a, it's a faulty theoretical framework, um, certainly in the North. And there's a sort of two histories of policing in America, uh, Southern and Northern. You know, I went and looked at the, um, what was Frederick Douglass' newspaper called in Rochester? Yeah, two of them. But I, mm. I, I, they're, they're all in the Library of Congress. And in the 1850s, it uh, might have been early 1860s, I think in the 1850s, Rochester set up their first new police department, the new police as it was called, based on the New York City model, which was based on the London model of 1829. And that's, a, that's the descendants. And I was curious, what did Frederick Douglass say about the police coming to Rochester? He said nothing. Now, maybe I missed it. You know, I, I, I did not read every word of every page, but I did a, you know, a thorough search from the Library of Congress things and, and you know, search for police and stuff. He mentioned occasional police incidents, um, sometimes favorably, sometimes not. But the fact that when police came to Rochester, and Frederick Douglass, who was not known to hold his tongue, um, had no objection to it. That, to me, is a pretty strong piece of evidence to say that, no, the foundation of police was not white supremacy, because if it were, for, you, we, we would have heard about it from Frederick Douglass, I would think. Well, not in the <laughs> 1850s in Rochester, New York, certainly not. It, I would imagine the Irish, rather than the blacks, would have been the ones complaining about, about law enforcement. But, but I, I wanted like to go New back York. to your thing about maybe if we want to solve the police problem, we need to solve the race problem first, because it jibes with a certain kind of talk that I hear on the right, which is, look, there is so much crime and violence and uh, really bad, vicious, dangerous behavior. I've been to too many crime scenes. I've seen too many homicides, over 10,000 blacks killed in a year, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much that. The people who have to deal with it, inever, inevitably, there's going to be excess. That doesn't excuse the excess, but it does help us to account for it. 
if you don't want incidents like this, get more fathers in black households, uh, get better behavior out of the miscreants in those communities. Because if you don't, there are inevitably going to be uh, these kinds of encounters. And the driving force here is crime, not policing. Well, we can have, you know, you know, the nuance, which is not very nuanced, is people want more policing and better policing. Um, and they're not mutually exclusive. And somebody in a high crime neighborhood can dislike cops on a personal level and still say, understand that they're necessary. Um, it's the people who don't live in the communities that seem to forget the fact that people still want policing, even if they're unhappy with the standard of policing being delivered. I mean, really, only a fool thinks that neighborhoods are going to be safer without cops. Um, I mean, it's just, but that's, you know, the, the Overton window of discussion since, really since Ferguson, but but since Floyd in particular, has just shifted so far to this idea where people, you know, just say, well, you know, talk about police abolition. Um, you know, my local city council person openly, you know, advocates for that. And people sort of, you know, nod their head going, oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, th that's, th it's a bad idea. Um, but then to, to sort of make that argument you have to understand, you have to then also push back on the, you know, the idea that, oh, policing, the purpose of policing is, is, is the oppression of, of, of the black community or whatever. Um, we have literary. to get back to those ideals that, you know, police, it's a, it's a civilian controlled organization um, and it's there for the people. It's a, it's a, it's a public service, um, flawed. Uh, but it's a public service, and, and that has to be the starting point, is how can we deliver the services best, doing the least harm and, and you know, most effectively and with greatest satisfaction. Uh, but, you know, just by being in that, in that radical center category, you know, and it's it, in the academic world that, you know, puts me on the far right of these issues, which I find just so, um, it's so negligent because we have, we on the left, I don't include you in that, Glenn, uh, but we on the left um, have basically abdicated lowercase crime in order to, to the Trumpian right. Um, and that's not the solution either. Um, so, you, you know, Biden, for all his, you know, I, you know, Biden has an opportunity here. Biden does not dislike policing or cops. I'm not so certain about his vice president. Um, but there is a role for the federal government. Um, policing is local, but the federal government, it will cost money, though. I mean, that's the problem. Uh, but there could be national standards. There could be cops hired again, uh, like the 94 crime bill, at, at the federal level to get money police departments. They could set up a uh, training center at a national level. Um, you'd have to pay for it so, cop, so, so local departments would send their cops there. Um, all, we could just have data collection. I mean, isn't it amazing? Maybe uh, to me, you know, data collection has gotten worse because of the shift to neighbors and from UCR, and that's, you know, another issue. Um, but we don't, we still don't collect, the federal government still can't tell you how many, how many people cops killed. They have to estimate how many people are murdered in this country last year. And presumably it'll get a little better as this new system goes into play, but maybe not. I mean, why are we still having these problems? So that, that's one of, those type of things are one of the few things that could happen nationally. Um, though generally this, you know, p police departments, the improvement's going to have to happen at a local level. And that just makes it hard because we got tens of thousands of departments and most are really small. Um, but that's America. Mm -hmm. Peter, I want to thank you for your time coming on here at the Glenn Show, talking with me and John about policing in the light of the Memphis situation. We're going to excuse you so John and I can commiserate for a few minutes before we close out. All right. Thanks for having me. It's great to see both of you. Peter, perfect. Don't close perfect. that window Absolutely. until you get all your files uploaded, Peter. Okay. But I'll cook leave, right? So you can talk about me? Uh, yeah, you can leave so <laughs> we can talk bye -bye. about take, you. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, John, did you see the funeral? I listened to it. Yeah. Okay. What did you think? I thought it was quite a spectacle. Vice President mm -hmm. Kamala Harris was there. Uh, the mayor of Atlanta, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, was there. 
mayor of Quite New Orleans. Simply, if the person murdered were white, none of those people would have been there. And that angered me. Well, there frankly, wouldn't have been a national broadcast that, on cable news and on radio of the funeral either. All of that is a statement that what killed him was his color. And I think that's a, a willfully simplistic analysis, and all of them were buying right into it. Funeral was broadcast live on cable uh, networks, MSNBC and CNN, but not on Fox News. I shifted around. This was in the afternoon on Wednesday. Uh, why was I watching cable news in the afternoon on Wednesday? It's a long story. Uh, let's not go into it. Uh, but when I mm-hmm. noticed that the funeral was on, I thought, you know, yeah, I probably have a professional obligation to watch this thing. And it went on for over an hour. Sharpton gave a eulogy uh, that was very passionate, eloquent, I must say, powerful. Um, He invoked Martin Luther King Jr. because we were in Memphis and that's where King had been killed. And he invoked the the mountaintop speech. I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. We may not, I may not get there with you, this kind of thing. And Sharpton likened himself to King indirectly by pointing out he was a climber too. He's on the mountain too. He hasn't quite gotten to the top, but he's, you know, following in the the good fight kind of thing like that. Sharpton is the uh, civil rights leader for Black America of our time. I think that that point was underscored. Mm. Uh, Benjamin Crump, I, introduced I by Sharpton, gave a long speech in which he did the, the lawyer's thing. Sharpton introduced Benjamin Crump as the attorney general of Black America, quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. Michael Eric Dyson was there. Talk about people with three names. Sharpton pointed to Michael Eric Dyson in the audience, calling him the Socrates of our time, quote, unquote. And I watched this spectacle unfold. And here I had two thoughts. John, please uh, tell me why I'm wrong. One was, this is a performance, a scripted enactment. I could have almost written the script before it even happened. This, this was a show. Not to take anything, no disrespect intended, no disrespect intended to the family who were burying their loved one who had been brutally murdered by police. No, really, no disrespect intended. But I watched our vice president at that uh, gathering, and she was playing a certain kind of role, and it was a certain kind of uh, uh, dramatic uh, enactment. And we're really good at it. It, we, we, it put on a good show. It sent chills up my spine. It's in a black church. Everybody is hallelujah and whatnot. And the cadences and the intonations and the uh, evocations, they were all really quite familiar to me. And they were at some level comforting as I got wrapped into this narrative about oppression and struggle and race and whatnot. I thought that. Um, I thought it was a show. But I'm going to say this. I, con- I consulted my wife about whether or not I should say this in public, and I'm going to say this. Three days ago, she and I entertained ourselves one evening by going to uh, uh, Amazon Video and digging out Spike Lee's Bamboozled. Mm. This is an old his, film. Yeah, that, was one of his less, that was one of his lesser efforts, and I've seen every single one of his films. I did not know what he was trying to say, but I remember it very well, yeah. So the, the plot of it is that there's an ambitious black uh, scriptwriter for a TV uh, network who wants to get ahead in life, and he comes up with the idea, I know what I'll do, I'll know what, we need a hit show, here's my hit show. Damon We're going to reenact blackface uh, kind of a minstrel show-like uh, characters. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, we're going to play that card. We're going to play the blackface minstrel card, uh, and, uh, draw an audience in that way. And, uh, Spike Lee uses that as a device for, you know, plumbing the, you know, the ambition, authenticity, identity, uh, the commercialism of, of the media, the, uh, sort of amorality and whatever. I'm not a movie critic. I'll just leave it at that. But in, the, in so doing, filmically, he has to capture these images. So I know, for example, how you make blackface because you burn the cork, you mix in the water, you know, you, you, you have to put something on your face to protect the cocoa butter or something before you put the blackface. 
I know about these, uh, uh, you know, items that people would keep in their homes where they would have a mammy or something or about these posters and uh, adverts. This is from the earlier period of Jim Crow, where the Negro with the red lips and the big eyes bulging and the, you know, the step and fetch it kind of the Amos and Andy kind of, you know, that's all been brought back. And I could not get out of my head the thought that there was a way in which that, God, this is horrible. It's horrible. But it, I just said, this is a coon show. This, there's something almost undignified about it, John. God help me. Um, I watched the enactment and I thought people are going through the motions, and especially in virtue of the fact that uh, Al Sharpton was in uh, the chair. I'm not a big fan of Al Sharpton. And Benjamin Crump, author of the witness fraud of the Trayvon Martin hoax, uh, was uh, running the show. Uh, The uh, chair, the Reverend Al Sharpton, his uh, National Action Network, um, were the organizers. Uh, They um, thanked local people for bringing them in and you got the sense that this is a traveling road show. As Peter says, there will be another such incident. And when it happens, we're going to enact another such ritual. Um, I, I, I couldn't help but think that this is grist for their mill. This is part of what it is that keeps them going. There's a kind of almost ambulance chase dimension to it. And I'll stop because I've already gotten myself into enough trouble. But, but I, I was... <sighs> deeply depressed in 2023 by the ease and deft, deftness, deftness with which this uh, white supremacy has done us wrong and we Black people struggle under the boot weight on our neck and uh, it's 1963 all over again, was projected uh, across table te- cable television to the nation as the civil rights expression of our time. Um, I was I was uh, dismayed by it, frankly. <laughs> Where it's the same little impasse that we reach. Um, I was disturbed by it because I felt that the constant implication that Tyree Nichols died because he was black is false. However, I don't think that the people there know that. I don't think that it's a dog and pony show. I don't think that they're doing it because they want to put on a show and get attention. I mean, you know, it's at a point. I know Dyson. He and I are about to actually do a debate and that'll probably, now that I think of it, be all about this in Syracuse in a few months. Um, I have, you know, spoken at a certain length with Sharpton. I have been in a room with both of those men. They are, we may not agree with them, but they are not insincere. Uh, I have to be. Uh, I, and they're not opportunists either. Excuse me. No, they're, they're not, not opportunists. No, they're not. It's I. I. I hate to say this because they might hear me saying this, but I honestly believe that a black person can found their sense of significance upon this sort of thing, such that they feel that this gives them a sense of purpose, and. For them to widen the lens and allow that it's not 1960 would be it would it would be fearsome. It would be difficult. It would be dislocating, and that's not what people do. Here's some indication of the kind of sincerity that I mean. Bamboozled was a very interesting movie. I love Spike Lee's work. He's one of my three favorite directors. The answer to the question people are wondering is Woody Allen and the Coen Brothers. Then Spike Lee is one of my favorites. I've seen every single scrap of everything he's done. And, you know, he's human. Sometimes he misses. Sometimes he hits it. Sometimes it's in the middle. Bamboozled was the first one where I felt, wow, that didn't work. And one of the reasons was that Spike felt comfortable preaching openly in a way that he doesn't usually because he thought of these particular issues that there are certain black people who exploit deliberately. He thought of that as just a given. He really thinks there are such people. So 
for Jada Pinkett Smith having to do that speech where she shows clips of minstrelism and has to say to him, look at what you're contributing to, yeah. as if that's how people really talk. But I think Spike Lee kind of felt like it didn't have to be the way people really talk because of that liturgy to get, you know, monotonous. Or notice the main flaw in that film, that Damon Wayans walks around talking in that silly voice. Yeah, how the main character talks like yeah. this, and Jada Pinkett actually is sleeping with him, etc. That voice that Damon Wayans was, was allowed to do, that is Spike Lee basically saying that, frankly, people like you and me are jackasses. That this person is not only doing something wrong, but you're going to show it by having him walk around talking like a sketch character for the entirety of what's supposed to be a relatively serious film. Huge mistake, unless you realize that Spike Lee really thinks that people like him are that ridiculous, that sly, that deliberate. Honestly, that's the same thing at that funeral. It, there's a sincerity there. I think their lens is too narrow. I think that they've gotten caught up in a sense of their identity as being based on making that same point. But I wasn't as disgusted as you are because I don't want to step out of myself either. It's, it's hard. It's their selves. Kamala Harris, I don't know what's in her soul. I genuinely don't. But in terms of Sharpton, certainly Crump from what I can see. And in terms of Dyson, I don't see insincerity in them. I see a preservation of their sense of their own personhood, which I cannot, I cannot be angry about. I see an irony. About. I don't know how you can effectively denounce, quote unquote, white supremacy when you're wallowing in racialism, when you've made race everything, when you're constantly playing the race card. Kamala Harris, our nation's first black vice president. I mean, I think that formulation, which is taken for granted, is absurd, frankly. I mean, <laughs> I think Benjamin Crump is black America's attorney general is offensive to me. That, that idea, that, that, that formulation is offensive to me. Um, I think when Sharpton speaks and uses the first person plural about the conditions of black people in America, uh, that I'm listening to a grifter uh, who, who has a shtick, who is imposing it on us. And I can't be the only person who thinks like this. I'm probably one of the few people who will say it in part because I have the protection of being a black person. But I assure you that many, many, many Democratic voting, middle-of-the-road white people looked at that show and had feelings not dissimilar from my own. I mean, the uh, assimilation of the problem of policing in an American city in 2023 to the fight against Jim Crow is just a fraudulent move, John. You think people don't know that they're defrauding us when, when they make that move? You don't think they know the difference? I'm sure they know the difference. I'm sure Michael Eric Dyson knows the difference. I'm sure the Reverend Al Sharpton knows the difference. So, no, we don't but agree Glenn, about this. Malicious. What? This is not just mistaken. This is malicious. But, Glenn, they, they all think... Pretend to think? Well, remember, they're not interested in the other data. It doesn't fit with the narrative. They all think that what's going on all over the country is cases like Tyree Nichols, like Philando Castile. He's reaching into his pocket and gets shot dead. Yeah. They, think, they think that's going on all over the country. They think it only happens to black people and maybe the occasional Latino. They think, remember that the statistic is that Black men, black people are killed by cops disproportionately. They're killed by cops at twice the rate of white people. Well, what they're all thinking is that that means that 800 black men are killed and only 400 white men. They don't know that we're talking about proportions so that black people are only 14% okay. that it's many fewer. Can't you see that they, I almost want to say pretend, but then again, I don't, I don't know if the people we're talking about know the numbers here. And so they think that, that, that if that were going on, wouldn't it be kind of an extension of Jim Crow? It's just that it isn't what's going on. John, over 10,000 black people were murdered last year. 10,000. I know where you're going. You think yeah. they don't know that? They, they, they think it's different if the state does it, which I think is appalling. Yeah, okay. But they think it's different. Okay. That, I agree with you, is bullshit. 
as far as they're concerned, if you get shot by somebody down the street, that's regrettable, as they often put it. But if you get shot by the cop, especially because the cop is probably white, well, that is Armageddon. So They are national leaders with the capacity to orient the conversation amongst Black people about what confronts us as uh, difficulties in American society today. And they have elected, given that capacity, to so orient in the manner that I have been dismissive of, instead of calling us to strengthen our communities in ways that might actually change the facts on the ground, not about policing, but about the way in which too many of us conduct ourselves that makes life practically unlivable for the rest of us in these communities. The police are not the ones who caused 10,000 black people to be murdered last year. So, you know, okay, I've said my piece. I hear you. I get it. I, I, I did not like listening to it either. It was a show. But I think that those people think of it as a show with a purpose. Um, I hear you, though. I dis- and I disagree with their, their take on the whole matter. But you're still a fan of Al Sharpton. I don't think that he's doing anything wrong these days. <laughs> I, don't, not, I don't know if I'm a fan, but I think yeah, that, okay, okay, allow okay. that people change. And I think he really does think of himself as doing God's work. And God's work is about racism. That's what he does. And I think that's what he sees. Well, like I said, it was a good show. They, they put on a show and they, you know, they know how to do it. So, okay, we have had another hour and it's been a pleasure <clears throat> talking to you. Let's sign off so we can uh, respond to questions. Indeed. All right. I'm going to stop us. <laughs>